Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, a typically temperate Donald Trump decried what he called horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court as shotgun blasts into the face of people that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives. Trump meant, of course, the ruling stopping his administration, for now, from ending DACA, the program protecting hundreds of thousands of young immigrants from deportation. And maybe even more so, the historic ruling from earlier in the week, declaring that Title VII of the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 does, in fact, make it illegal for employers to discriminate against a worker because of their sexual orientation or their transgender status. That 6-3 to decision surprised and elated many. We'll talk about how we got here and what it means going forward with civil rights attorney Ezra Young, whose litigation and scholarship center on trans rights. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. As police violence against black people and those who would rise in their defense forces a national engagement of a sort with the reality of white supremacy in our institutions, the widening recognition that the batons and tear gas are just one part of it, that there's more than one way to choke the life out of a people, meant that it was just a matter of time before news media would need to acknowledge the call coming from inside the House. So we have the week just passed, wherein we learned that numerous powerful media figures have not just tweeted, joked, or dressed up as, but have enforced policies and practices and pay differentials that, deep breath, do not reflect the values they now hold. They now understand to be deeply hurtful. They only wish they'd been alerted to sooner. They are taking time to reflect deeply upon. They are committed to doing better about going forward. They look forward to being challenged on and about which heaven only knows they are listening. Journalism is a public service, but media outlets are institutions in many ways like many others in this country. They have hierarchies and unspoken rules and power plays and anti-black racism. It's just that white supremacy and the outlets we rely on to show us the world has especially resounding repercussions. When you see Amazon, for example, saying they stand in solidarity with the black community, it's easy to recognize that for a gesture, an effort to wave off criticism without taking seriously the actually truly challenging work of interrogating the role that structural and interpersonal racism play in their workplace and their field. Translated into journalism, that surface-skimming effort looks something like the AP's June 10th rendering of the situation, quote, headline-making missteps put focus on newsroom diversity, close quote. The New York Times told readers and all the other media that take their lead from the paper to listen respectfully to a call for the U.S. military to take to the streets against black people. The paper did not merely accept, but solicited the piece, Send in the Troops, from Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. When black staffers said amplifying that call put them in danger, the editorial page editor first said essentially all viewpoints matter, then admitted he hadn't even read it. Calling that a misstep 
as though the paper were going somewhere good but got a tiny bit off track, is not describing but compounding the harm. Defining the missteps as headline-making shows a certain self-regard, as if if media didn't notice media messing up, media wouldn't be messing up. Put focus on is more of the same. Whose focus? The black and brown staffers complaining aren't saying anything they haven't said before and been rebuffed over. So if this focus is new, why is that? And who's in charge of when it stops? Alexis Johnson, black reporter at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, was barred from covering the protests because she tweeted photos of horrifying scenes and aftermath from selfish looters before revealing that the images were actually pictures from a Kenny Chesney concert tailgate. Johnson was told that after this commentary, her or any colleagues who tweeted support for her covering the George Floyd uprising might cause the credibility of the newsroom to be questioned. AP tells readers, quote, Johnson ran afoul of rules that discourage journalists from being publicly opinionated on social media posts and elsewhere, close quote. But it didn't note that the Post-Gazette's white editor runs the newsroom while also writing opinion columns, including one defending Trump's attack on whole countries and another that called feminism a step back toward barbarism. What does that mean for the paper's pretenses around credibility? Well, AP doesn't ask because diversity doesn't require it to go that deep, just to include a quote from Johnson. And about that diversity, AP's definition of the problem, revealed by the Times calling for military assaults on citizens and the Post-Gazette banning black reporters from covering the story of the day, and the Philadelphia Inquirer running the headline, Buildings Matter Too, and on and on, is, quote, news media's sluggishness in building diverse newsrooms, close quote. And it cites the 1968 Kerner Commission, formerly the report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, which indicted news media, along with police and politicians, for their role in driving the racial divisions that roiled the country. Shockingly backward, AP reminds us, is how the Kerner Report described U.S. journalism's record of hiring and promoting African Americans. Well, the report did call for hiring more black people, and a number of great reporters got their breaks in the wake of it, reporting not just on urban unrest, but on everyday life in communities of color, filling a void left by a press corps that Kerner charged, quote, acts and talks about Negroes as if Negroes do not read the newspapers and watch television, give birth, marry, die, and go to PTA meetings, close quote. But that hiring flagged. African Americans were just 2% of newspaper employees in 1978, few in decision-making roles, and two-thirds of the nation's papers had no employees of color at all, according to a survey by the American Society of Newspaper Editors. The group called for the reignition of Kerner's demands, setting a goal of minority employment in newspapers equal to their proportion of the country's population by the year 2000. By 1998, it was clear this was nowhere close to happening. Black people were 13.3% of the population and still just 5.4% of newsroom employees. So they pushed the goal back to 2025. 
In 2017, the group found just 5.6% of newsroom employees were black and 4.6% of newsroom leaders. The group's statement the following year, on Kerner's 50th anniversary, acknowledged that their goal wasn't met or anything like it, adding, quote, but diversity is now part of industry language, close quote. But that's just it. The Kerner report didn't call for diversity. It called for U.S. journalism to decenter its white male view. Media, quote, report and write from the standpoint of a white man's world, close quote. Coverage, quote, reflects the biases, the paternalism, the indifference of white America, close quote. And the report said, this isn't just lamentable. It's, quote, not excusable in an institution that has the mission to inform and educate the whole of our society, close quote. For Kerner, the meaningful representation of black people in editorial roles wasn't a sop or a nice thing to do, but a core value. Inclusion was crucial as a means toward an end, which was media that would, quote, meet the Negro's legitimate expectations in journalism, close quote. Can you hear the difference between that and 52 years later, AP's anodyne statement, quote, a failure to include journalists of many different backgrounds means missing stories, close quote. In the apology to readers and staffers about the headline suggesting an equivalence between the loss of buildings and the lives of black Americans, Philadelphia Inquirer editors stated, quote, we also know that an apology on its own is not sufficient, close quote. What would be sufficient? Well, that's an important conversation. But a start would be for media to stop saying missteps when they mean sustained systemic failures and to get it through their heads that the demand is not for more diversity but for less white supremacy. Journalists ought to speak plainly, including when they're talking to themselves. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The Supreme Court ruled this week that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act protects people from job discrimination based on sexual orientation or identity. In other words, it is illegal for employers to discriminate against a worker because of their sexual orientation or their transgender status. That might sound like basic fairness, but the ruling was reported as a surprise, given the court's conservative majority. So how did it happen, and how far-reaching are the repercussions? Ezra Young is a civil rights attorney whose litigation and scholarship center on trans rights. He joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome to Counterspin, Ezra Young. Hi, thanks for having me, Janine. Well, we'll talk about arguments and impact, but first I wondered... What was just your initial professional and or personal reaction to the court's ruling on Monday? Personally and professionally, I felt vindicated for several reasons. Personally, I'm transgender, I'm also bisexual, and this is obviously a landmark opinion. It affirms that generally applicable non-discrimination laws protect everyone, including unpopular groups, including the specific instance LGBT people, and we're not going to read extra textual exceptions into them. That's huge. That's tremendous. And as you said, Janine, for this court in particular, it's somewhat surprising that they would come down on the side of the test. 
professionally, I've worked the last eight years of my life pretty narrowly on sex discrimination laws, specifically as to transgender people litigating and writing about why these laws do protect transgender people in a lot of different instances. And most of my cases have been Title VII cases. So this is a great thing to say. Well, listeners will know that this was two sets of cases, uh, two suits from gay men who had been fired because of that, Bostock and Zarda, and then Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC, which was the gender identity case brought by Amy Stevens, who was fired when she told her employer that she was transitioning. So what, simply put, was the argument that the court wound up supporting six to three? Sensibly, in the opinion written by Justice Gorsuch, sensibly says that the court is going to read the statute as written. The statute says employers may not discriminate on account of a number of different statuses. One of them is sex. It doesn't really say what sex is. There are a few examples, many of which pertain to pregnancy discrimination because of other cases. But literally, it just says whatever sex discrimination is, it's prohibited in employment. So most of Justice Gorsuch's opinion tries to reason out how they could figure out what Congress meant or didn't meant in 1954. And a good chunk of the opinion goes into what I think is very important, both in this case and other cases, how we cannot import old historical biases that may have existed when the statute was passed and read those into a statute if Congress didn't write them in, meaning maybe Congress didn't like transgender people or gay people or lesbians or bisexuals in 1964. That's probably true, as to individual members of Congress. But because they didn't write in that exception to the statute in express words, that can't carry the day. We have to just read the statute as written. Well, not to say I told you so, but you did kind of tell us so, actually. Uh, Remembering that we are lay people, what led you to say in your California Law Review piece in March that if Harris, that's Amy Stevens' case, were to be one, that it would come down to that textual reading that you've just described, saying we're not talking about intent, we're talking about the words on the page, and that it would come down to Gorsuch. This is something that a lot of legal scholars and lay people equally have gotten wrong for a very long time. When I mean a long time, I mean basically for the last 40 to 50 years. A lot of people have assumed that ideologically conservative judges and justices would be against recognizing protection for transgender people as well as LGB people under Title VII. But actually in the court decision since the 1970s, since these cases first started coming up, it's actually been the ideological conservative judges who have pushed the idea that LGBT people are protected, which sounds baffling, right? I realize that. (laughs) So the first circuit used to go up uh, in the 1970s in the Ninth Circuit, which is known for being a fairly uh, liberal jurisdiction, Actually, it was the two liberal judges on that panel who said that the transgender person wasn't protected. It was a Nixon appointee, Judge Goodwin, who is not liberal by any means, who wrote a pretty lengthy dissent. The language is a little bit wonky because it's from the 1970s, but more or less tracks what Justice Gorsuch wrote in his opinion just a few days ago. More or less just says there's no exception here. We have to read the text as written. This might be weird. This might scare us. This might be odd to some people, but those are fact issues and those aren't really relevant to what the law says. And again and again and again, very, very conservative judges. Another example is Judge Pryor from the 11th Circuit, also very, very conservative, have come out in favor of transgender people. Now, Justice Gorsuch in particular overlooked at the time he was nominated by many people. 
Justice Gorsuch, then Judge Gorsuch, in 2009 in a Ninth Circuit opinion, he sat by designation because there was a gap in a panel, sat on a case much like Harris with a transgender woman who was fired for being a transgender woman. And though that opinion is curcurium, which means no judge signed their name to it, sometimes that just happens. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really mean anything. But that opinion was written in a tone that looks like Justice Gorsuch and more or less came to the same reason that he came this week in Bostock. There's no exception to transgender coverage. It doesn't say that in the text, so we're not going to find an exception. Pretty, pretty big thing in 2009. My thinking was if he was willing to go that far in 2009, which I think was the right decision, I don't see why in 2020 he'd go back on that. If nothing, he, he's pretty principled. He sticks to his guns. I don't always agree with him on a variety of issues, but he, he doesn't just flip-flop on case to case. So that, that's much of what I guess went into my reasoning. Well, maybe it's worth spelling out what we're talking about when we talk about the plain textual reading of, of Title VII of sex discrimination. The, the court seemed to be saying, well, if you're trying to discriminate against a lesbian, you would say, well, she's dating a woman. Well, if she were a man, would that be a problem? Well, no. Well, then it's sex discrimination. I mean, it really is kind of straight along those straight. Uh, um, it, it really is <laughs> al- along yeah. that line, that simple, essentially. Yeah, essentially. And the vast majority of courts to ever hear these cases have come out in that way. And that's something else that's sort of a lost history of Title VII litigation. This might be a political football right now. Well, maybe no longer after Monday. But for decades and decades and decades, the vast majority of judges to hear these cases, regardless of what party appointed them, regardless of their you know personal beliefs and religious affiliations, any of those things, the vast majority of judges thought this way. This is not a controversial stance, legally. Well, the Washington Post's Jennifer Rubin wrote that this ruling reminds us that, quote, while we might be slow in getting there and are diverted time and again, Americans can eventually be prevailed upon to come down on the side of fairness, equality, inclusion, and simple human decency, close quote. Well, that sounds nice and everything, but it makes it sound as though the expansion of civil rights is like water running downhill, you know, uh, with the implication that we can do something other than fight tooth and nail every every day for it. What do you make of that? Well, I think that's one way to look at it maybe a century from now <laughs> when it does seem so obvious, when we haven't actually lived the day-to-day struggles of what it took to get this opinion, right? This took decades upon decades of scholars, of workers, everyday workers standing up from the right, lawyers like me putting their livelihoods on the line to try to push this forward, plus a lot of luck having to seat a conservative justice who was willing to stick to their guns on this issue and was able to speak to his, his colleague, at least Justice Roberts to get him to side on the right side, right? It it took all of these things. It took a lot of luck, to be frank, on top of a lot of hard work, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, I think it's good to look at it as this is an American value now, that we do the right thing and we read laws the way that they should, and we don't try to diminish Congress's intent by our own prejudices. But this is, as you suggested, Janine, a huge part of the story, a huge part of the struggle. And the many hundreds, thousands of lives that, were sacrificed to get it, to be quite honest. Of the three cases that went to the Supreme Court, two of these plaintiffs died waiting. Amy Stevens died just last month in May, waiting for this decision. She never got to see it. 
Right. We don't want to erase that. Well, and and just as with having to argue that Black Lives Matter, you know, for Pete's sake, I have seen a few folks saying, you know, of course I'm relieved, but how excited do you want me to get that having had to litigate my humanity, you know, I won, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but also not to put too fine a point on it. There are still plenty of places and plenty of ways to discriminate against trans people in particular. Yes, and we might in the years to come see inroads there. I know some people critique Justice Gorsuch's opinion as being kind of dry, because it is. It's not like an opinion by Justice Kennedy. Some people might remember uh, their Burgerfeld, the big marriage equality decision in 2015. A lot of gay people, a lot of gay friends I know, when they got married after that decision, they write excerpts of the opinion at their ceremony because it was flowery, it was beautiful, it talked about equal dignity and those sorts of things. That's not Justice Gorsuch's style, right? Um, but from a legal point of view, Justice Gorsuch's opinion might be useful trying to talk to other conservative judges, you know, at the state and federal level, about how we read other laws, that you're literally not allowed to read transgender people out of protection just because you dislike them or just because you're scared of transgender people. So in that way, it might prove particularly useful that obviously, you know, the struggle will keep going, but there will be more cases that will be pushed back. Well, a question, a specific question that I know a lot of people have, what does this Supreme Court ruling mean for the HHS move that came just in advance of it that was eliminating protections against anti-trans discrimination, also that against women seeking abortions in healthcare? Does this ruling connect with that? Yes, I think it does. So the HHS regulation is basically based upon not to get into like the details of how the statutory regime works, but basically a very similar law that generally bans discrimination on the basis of sex. Under the Obama administration, there had been a regulation in the healthcare context that basically said whatever sex discrimination is in healthcare, it most definitely includes discrimination against transgender people trying to seek certain types of healthcare, as well as persons who have had abortions who are discriminated against because they have had abortions, because the experience of having had an abortion has a direct link to one step. So it's very likely, based upon the Bostock decision, which is one of the first big just decisions about what sex discrimination does and doesn't mean in a very long time outside of the LGBT context, it's very likely, I think, based on Bostock, the HHS regulation, which was released last Friday, is just dead in the water. It has a very, it embraced a very, very cramped view of sex discrimination that Justice Gorsuch's opinion just totally eviscerates. And uh, Justice Alito's dissent in Bostock sort of admits as much, saying that all of these things in healthcare and a variety of other areas, those limits no longer exist. They can't under Bostock. Well, the case that the court looked at does cover the workplace, and the workplace is mm-hmm. only one arena in which we live. And we do want to be mindful of what uh, writer Dorothy Benz calls Swiss cheese civil rights. You know, you can have be protected in one arena and then suddenly not. But the workplace is a huge place to start and does have or could have a bigger meaning, right? If it if it if it means, for example, that more trans people can get into the workforce. So this really it really is big. It's really big. And beyond that, I would say if it were any other civil rights statute, I might agree with the possibility of the Swiss cheese rights problem. But Title VII in American law is tremendously important. The vast majority of federal and state courts, when they're interpreting federal or state laws about sex discrimination in any area of law, 
defer to how the Supreme Court reads Title VII, because Title VII is just sort of the end-all and be-all of what sex discrimination is. So it is more likely than not, in my opinion, that this reverberates throughout all sorts of sex discrimination laws, so far beyond the workplace. Well, finally, there are a couple of prevalent media frames that I've noticed that they're not wrong, but I find them limiting. One is reading the Supreme Court's ruling as a rebuke to the White House, you know, which of course it is, but we know, of course, it's bigger than just, you know, anti-Trumpism. It extends before him and beyond him. And then there's the, you know, it's a victory for liberals, like, okay, you won this round, people who believe in human rights, you know, but but we're coming back for you. And even the really well-meaning, it's a victory for LGBTQ people, which of course it is. And I know I sound like a like a language prig, but I, I just think, why not say a victory for fairness? Why not say a victory for a healthier society? I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the way media come at this set of issues generally, if there's anything you'd like to see more of or less of. What about that piece of it? I think one line of messaging that is being missed right now, and it's perhaps the least sexy, pun intended, of what one can say is, if nothing else, this is a victory for all of those things, but it's also a tremendous victory for textualism, which is the School of Statutory Interpretation, Justice Gorsuch, and the late Justice Scalia led with. This is showing that textualism can allow progressive pro-LGBT outcomes to occur. And I think we're going to see a divide on the conservative side about that, because for a long time, legal conservatives have been saying, well, of course, that's possible. It's just it just so happens we never support those outcomes. Mm -hmm. But this is a case that shows that, you know, maybe there's a way that conservatives and liberals, conservatives and progressives can speak to each other sanely about the same issues and come out to the same outcome, even if we speak about these issues differently. I know some people, it bothers them that there's not a lot of dignity and sort of happiness from Justice Gorsuch's opinion. I think at the end of the day, for a lot of poor trans folks, poor gay folks, many of folks who are people of color, too, who are just struggling, trying to make ends meet, that want jobs, they don't really care what the opinion says. They care that they have rights. And this is how they got it. And I think maybe it's just dark 2020 times right now, but that in itself, that's a gift, however we get it. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney Ezra Young. You can follow his work at EzraYoung.com. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Ezra Young. Thank you so much. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.